0: Well, well, welcome to Talking, um, our uh, J- J- Jimmy Stewart. I'm Tim Vanderberg, your fanboy host, and in this episode, we're going to talk about a Jimmy Stewart you've never fully known, the war hero. Mr. Stewart, General Stewart, rarely spoke of his service, even to his own family, but now author Robert Matson has written an incredible book that enables us, for the first time, to get an in-depth look at his wartime experiences. It's called Mission, Jimmy Stewart and the Fight for Europe. Regarding its riveting account of his military service, Jimmy's daughter Kelly describes the book as the best glimpse we will ever have of what the experience was like for him and the men he flew with. I talked to Robert Matson recently by phone, and here's our conversation. I hope you'll enjoy it. I know listeners are familiar with your work. Uh, You're the author of several books, including Fireball, focusing on Carol Lombard. Uh, But you have a day job as well. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, um, it's pretty boring, but... um... Yeah, I, I am a government contractor. I work for a small woman-owned company in Pittsburgh called Acoya. And for 10 years, my client um, on that day job was NASA, where I worked for NASA Aeronautics doing communications for them, all sorts of communications, web, um, print, especially video. And because of that gig, I got uh, hooked up with the Astronaut Corps and did some videos for with the astronauts, which was really cool. Um, and lately I've been working for the Department of Energy by day and writing like the wind by night.
0: Alright, so that leads to my question, when do you write? So you write at night, you're not a morning writer?
1: No, no, I get up at, at 5 a.m. and go to work and leave at 3 and come home. And my goal on, say, mission uh, and fireball before that, was to get a thousand words a night down because if you accumulate a thousand words at night, you have a book theoretically in a hundred days. Okay. <laughs> it, that's not quite that easy, but you know that was my goal. All
0: right. So you yourself did not approach this book because you were the world's biggest Jimmy Stewart fan. Why write this book? No,
1: I, I started out this project. Neutral on Stewart. Neutral, absolutely neutral. Mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up with him like everybody else, but I had finished Fireball, and Fireball had been an unexpected success, a, a very nice success, an award winner, um, a bestseller, and I. You can't go from something like that to um, a book about Louis Hayward, or you know, uh, you need something with juice and. The same person that suggested I write Fireball came up with this idea for a book on Stewart on the one topic nobody had ever been able to cover, and that was his wartime experiences. And his, mm-hmm. There had been a book called Jimmy Stewart Bomber Pilot, which was a very, very cursory look at his combat career, and I wanted to see if I could do something in depth on Stewart on this, you know, forbidden topic that he would never talk about. And so I started down that path with some no-go, no-go or no-go points, and here we are
0: today. Yeah, so most biographies about Jimmy Stewart devote a chapter at most to his war experiences. You've made this book the entire, you've made his service the entire focus uh, and created something we've never seen, mission by mission, as you say, uh, how did you go about finding the information to bring that to life? Because you do a masterful job of of doing that? It's uh, it's presented in a dramatic format. It's in the moment, um, firsthand, as they say. It reads like a novel. Um, how did you how did you go about finding the tools you needed?
1: First of all, thank you, Tim. That's very nice of you to say. Oh, you bet. <laughs> um, uh, well. The go-no-go point for me was, could I find the combat mission reports that were kept for every mission that every crew flew for the 8th Air Force and the 15th Air Force, all the Air Forces? And I have a crack researcher in D.C. It's not like I went down to D.C. and put on my visor and and ferreted through these files. I, I have this researcher who is just a whiz, and I said, this is what I need, and within a day, she had found them you know, in Silver Spring or some repository of government, War Department, DOD files. Yeah. And, um, and I, I managed to get her the 20 missions, you know, where they were to, what the dates were, and she got me the information. And I've read those reports, and you really have to sift through them to find out is the depth of material there. And I had, you know, I had the takeoff time, the formation, the who was on the crew, um, the wind speed, the cloud cover, the bomb load. I had everything, uh, where they met the fighters, where they met the flak, who was shot down, who was wounded, you know, what, what engine was shot. I, I had everything and I knew at that point I could give it a good shot.
0: So you've presented this person that we've never seen before. Um, We all know James Stewart. That's the screen credit given in all of his films. Um, Jimmy is the approachable, friendly persona that he embraced. Everybody's familiar with that. But you've painted this portrait of a person you refer to as Jim Stewart. And I wondered if you could shed some light on why you selected this name.
1: Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, and I don't know how many people are going to pick up on it, but to me, Jimmy is the public persona. He's Jimmy is the character that Stuart wanted you to see. And um Jimmy is the guy who showed up on The Tonight Show and read the poems and, you know, charmed the pants off everybody with his affable style. Jim is an intense loner, uh, a closed book, uh, an introvert, and... That was the that was the person that his friends knew and his family knew was Jim, not Jimmy, and um, and you can you can tell how well somebody knew Stewart by w- what they called him. Uh, the, the guys who flew with him now that it's you know sixty seventy years later, they know him as Jimmy. Oh, I flew with Jimmy Stewart. Well, back then you certainly didn't call him Jimmy. You called him Captain. You called him Sir. So it's. What you're seeing now is, you know, the misty haze of time and, and, you know, everybody was, it was one big happy family. Back in the day, it wasn't. So for my own understanding of who the real person was, he started to be known as Jim to me because he was like a friend of mine. He was like a member of the family. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to get that person separated from the public persona that he wanted you to see.
0: I thought that was very effective because I've never seen his never seen him named that way and it did put him in a different light. I, I got exactly what you were doing, so I thought that was that was an intriguing approach. Excellent. Uh, what what drove and I'm gonna have a hard time calling him Jim, but, but what drove Jim Stewart? I mean, I wanna get an understanding of who this person was who found himself in Hollywood in the nineteen thirties leading up to World War. What is going on in his head. What is motivating this person?
1: He was a very creative, very charming person. And, um, and he had an affinity for acting. Acting was the one thing that motivated him, turned him on, and kept him interested because he was easily bored. He, that boredom is reflected in the fact that he couldn't keep and hold on to a major in college. When he went to Princeton, You know, he was in different fields. He ended up in architecture, even though he had no desire to spend his career as an architect. He graduated with a degree in architecture, and he could have gone to graduate school for architecture because he was a smart guy. But he met up with some actors and uh, got involved with acting. Um, He had been performing, playing the accordion on stage, you know, but he gradually started taking roles as an actor, small roles, then bigger roles, and he found that he had quite the affinity for it. He was this closed book, but if he was playing somebody else, then that was fun. And it evolved, you know, it evolved to Broadway, and then it evolved to Hollywood. And suddenly, here he was, this very intense loner who was charming in public when he needed to be. Was quiet and kept to himself when he was away from the sound stages, away from the nightclubs, and became very successful.
0: Yet there's something else going on because he has an eye on the world and what's happening overseas, and he has a unique family perspective because his father fought in two wars, his grandparents, his grandfathers both fought in wars, and so. He—it's almost like he is um, keeping an eye open and looking for an opportunity, and that may be—that may have begun uh, with his pilot training. That's one of the first things he did when he got out to Hollywood. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, I, the core of the book and the title mission—the mission, the mission uh, of the title—is not combat mission so much as it's family mission. Mm-hmm. Family mission to serve your country. That was drummed into him by his grandfather, who had been a sergeant in the Army Signal Corps under Phil Sheridan in the Shenandoah Valley, was under Custer, you know, served with Custer, rode with Custer for crying out loud, and was at Appomattox for the surrender of Lee to Grant, and lived into the 1930s. So Jim grew up on the knee of this man who was a genuine war hero. That was on the one side. On the other side, um, his maternal grandfather was General Sam Jackson. He was a hero of Gettysburg. Second day, the Wheatfield, you know, Valley of Death in that area. While Chamberlain was up on the hill, I mean just up the hill with the 20th Maine, um, Sam Jackson was down defending the Wheatfield. Um, Jackson died just a year before Jim was born, but that shadow was very heavy around the Stewart household. So here was um, this general, and here was this sergeant, and then the son was Alex Stewart, who, as you say, fought in the Spanish-American War, fought in World War I, the Great War, as they called it. And so um, Jim knew he was going to serve. From being a small child, his mother would make him uniforms. When his dad went off to World War I, to the Great War, you see a photo in the book of Jim in his soldier's uniform that exactly matched his dad's. So, you know, that martial tradition was in the Stuart House, and Jim lived with it every day. By the 1930s, Hitler starts to rise to power, which you see in the book, and Jim senses pretty early on that he is gonna serve and probably serve in a European war and so, yes, he has always had an interest in flying. When he gets to Hollywood, he takes flying lessons. He buys his own plane, and the plane he buys is a Stinson, which is an Army
0: trainer. <laughs> mm. Oh, so it's definitely on his mind. Thank you for the perspective on family mission uh, for the title. That, that changes my outlook a little bit. I hadn't picked up on that. All right, so, I, like the, I
1: like the dual, you know, anything, anything I write, I like a dual meaning, like fireball is, is the fireball, Carol Lombard, and the fireball, the plane going up. And, and, I, nice. and I wanted something that was similar, that, you know, was evocative, and I thought mission hit it.
0: That's great. All right, so President Roosevelt institutes a draft, and Jimmy wastes no time in signing up uh, he's initially declined because of his weight. What other obstacles did he face in his mission to serve the way that he wanted to?
1: Well, um, yeah, he was drafted. He did not He did not run off and enlist, as you sometimes hear. He was drafted, but he considered that a good thing. You know, how many guys get drafted? You know, he's in the first draft class leading up to World War II, but he's happy about it because... It's going to help him fulfill his mission, and because, even though he had just won an Academy Award, he was getting kind of bored, because MGM wasn't putting him in great pictures after the Philadelphia story, and and he started to get a little disillusioned, um, and when he was inducted, he wanted to become an Army Flyer, Army Air Corps, and he he got his wish. He got assigned to the Army Air Corps, and the first place they wanted to send him. It's right in his personnel file. You will report to Wright field to the motion picture unit in Ohio. Uh, and, and immediately, he started to resist, which you're not supposed to do in the Army, but when you're a an Academy Award-winning movie star, you have a certain cachet, mm-hmm. and he started to fight. He started to fight to be able to be a combat flyer. That was his goal. Um, the War Department had no use for a movie star um, <laughs> flying over German skies because nothing good can come of that. Um, MGM had no use for it, one of its stars, one of its biggest, most reliable stars flying over German skies. So those were the headwinds that Stewart faced um, for the first two years of his active duty.
0: Okay, so he, he's fully aware of the danger that he faces. Uh, I wondered if you could give us a perspective on that, like the odds of surviving as a bomber pilot or crew member in World War II, uh, if you have any stats there, because I know uh, the odds are not good. And then in particular, uh, what are the things he would have faced as a B-24 pilot? Because I know those planes had problems.
1: Yeah, um, I, I could look up stats for you. I don't have them at hand. I, I don't remember things as well as I should sometimes, but it was the the odds were bad yeah. because they um, the bomber by its nature. So you you got a four engine bomber. It's either a B seventeen Flying Fortress or a B twenty four Liberator. They they are they fly slow, and the whole point is for them to fly in a straight line, uh, n- not evasively. They, in the, earlier in the in the war or in the European air war. Um, They would try to fight, they would try to evade flax fields and whatever, but when you do that, then the bombardier and the navigator can't steer a straight course and drop the bombs where they're supposed to go. So the decision was made, no, we're going to fly a straight line, level straight line. So, of course, German gunners have a perfect target. They know exactly where you're going to be. That's on the one hand. Uh, On the other hand, the B-24 Liberator was a terrible airplane. I mean, it was a... Romantically speaking, when you're looking back on it and you're one of these B 24 guys who survived, you think it's a great plane. But it was a horrible plane. Um, pilots who flew it told me how bad it was because it was really hard to muscle it in the air for these long missions from England to Germany. And it was, it had fuel line problems that caused it to sort of blow up uh, in the sky. Um, and that being the case, um, a plane would disappear, and you wouldn't know what happened to it, and it would turn out, well, Somebody, there was a spark, um, somebody lit a cigarette, whatever, it was just gone. And that happened quite a bit. It happened to one of Stuart's crews when he was a squadron commander. His pilot and his crew just disappeared when they were <laughs> heading to round up in formation to fly off to Germany. Mm-hmm. So um, those were the two problems he faced when he got into Liberator's. Um, like everybody else, he would have loved to have been a fighter pilot, but he was way too old and way too tall to fit in those cockpits and fly those, you know, those those were for 20-year-olds, and that wasn't Jim Stewart.
0: Yes. So all of this, you have these difficulties, and then that's not to mention constant enemy fire, uh, missions that are six or seven hours long, uh, the exhaustion, physical exhaustion that you would face, and then the, the fact that you might get up the next day and have to do it again. It's... Uh, it's just terrifying to think about. That's-
1: well, and that's not the thing that, that got to him. That wasn't the thing that made him crack up. What made him crack up was the stress of leading other men and having the having to make the decisions that would either keep men alive or kill men behind him. And since he was an older um, officer, 10, 15 years older than the the men he was leading, he became a squadron commander, and he became a formation leader, a formation commander. And the formations were sometimes 20, 15 planes, 25 planes, but then sometimes it was 75 planes, and later in the war it was 150 planes. And and that's what got him, the stress of that, of leading, of making the right decisions. Because another thing about Jim Stewart is it's a perfectionist. He is a perfectionist, and he always thinks he can do a better job. And And so... Somewhere around his 12th mission is the first time he cracks up. You know, he goes what they call flack happy, and he starts to miss rotations. He doesn't take his, his normal turn, and it gets worse and worse as the war goes on. And And I'm not being critical at all, because he he won me over with his outstanding service in the first three months of the war. If he had stopped right there, he'd have been a hero.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, in my interview with uh, Judy Stewart, she mentioned her father on occasion suffering from nightmares. Um, what did you learn about how that affected him psychologically just after the war? The on, is that um, is his service record goes through 1968? Is there anything in that personnel file or just through other interviews? Um, is there anything that you learned about specifically about his post traumatic stress disorder?
1: Uh, it's not in his personnel file. You know, I wish it were. I wish we could get some documentation because he's just representative of that generation of men who came back from World War II, particularly World mm-hmm. War II. Um, PTSD had not been identified. They would call it battle fatigue, shell shock, whatever, but the the lingering effects of it were not understood Um it's a miracle he didn't turn to alcohol, you know, like so many of them did. It's, he didn't become a wife beater. He he didn't he, it didn't affect his job performance. But yeah, he had shakes. He couldn't he had so much trouble putting weight back on. He couldn't eat. You know, his last 2 years in the war were just uh he survived on peanut butter and ice cream because he couldn't eat. He couldn't keep food down. His metabolism was skyrocketing. So, um yeah, the nightmares. it's just it's just representative of coming back from that level of stress.
0: I'm intrigued by this personnel file. Was there anything in there that stood out that you saw?
1: Yeah, the letter that he had um, he he cooked up this plan with an army doctor to get a get out of jail free card, basically that got him into the service and that this letter was key to everything where it said, you know, um, he, cause he couldn't get in, as you mentioned, because he was six foot four and 140 pounds or 139 pounds. It's just unheard of how thin he was mm-hmm. and he looked unhealthy and they gave up at MGM trying to beef him up and put weight on him. So, um, he had this doctor. He was in cahoots with this doctor who wrote this letter that said, no, this man is in perfectly fine condition. It's just a family trait that he's really, really thin. And Jim pulled this thing out anytime he needed it. It's how he got into the service. It's how he dodged, you know, um, medical evaluations and pulling him offline or whatever. No, 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 I got this letter and it got him through. That was the thing that stood out more than anything. You know, there, his, um, all of his, service in terms of various locations. He was a, he was a flight instructor for two engine uh, pilots, four engine pilots. He really served stateside in an important role of getting men ready for war. And then a lot of these flyers that he trained stateside, he met up with in England. And that was pretty cool. You know, there's a continuity there. So all these little things are in the personnel file, but nothing outstanding, unfortunately.
0: So you mentioned his perfectionism, and there was a quote that stood out to me. It was from the uh, Air Corps officer. You'll have, have to help me with the name, Bernie Lay Jr. Is that Bernie? Yeah. Um He said he made free use of the radio like an aerial quarterback to advise and encourage the other boys during a mission. And here his experience in films gave him a novel advantage. Because of his precise enunciation, people could understand him. It sounds like a little thing, but clear, quick communication between a formations between formations was of extraordinary importance. Uh, that hadn't occurred to me. His training uh, that that particular skill, his voice, uh, would carry a lot of weight and would would be a trait of a good leader.
1: Yeah, uh, um, and and I thought that Lay put that beautifully because it was so important when you're on the interphone at 20,000 feet with fighters swarming around you and flak detonating and rattling the airplane and the engine noise already is so loud and then the machine guns start, you know, um, from the turret right above the heads of the pilots and all the way back to have this voice you could understand. And they knew it was Stewart because everybody knew his voice because he was he was like a celebrity right in the midst of all these guys, right in the midst of this battle, here's this celebrity, and he could speak very clearly and succinctly, and it, it helped <laughs> the statistics to keep guys alive.
0: So in our email discussion earlier, I had mentioned a number of what I call stand up and cheer moments in the book. Um, parts where you're able to set the stage so well that, you know, for what was going on historically, I'm reading this and at one point I'm, I'm, I'm physically like pumping my fist and saying, yes, <laughs> um, it, it was great. Uh, I, was, I was talking specifically about this passage from the end of chapter 17, um, and I wondered if you wouldn't mind reading it and just give a, a bit of a setup as needed uh, for the story at that point.
1: Well, the setup is that um, the war was not going well. The air war for America was not going well because at this point in the war, the only U.S. troops fighting in Europe were the aviators, the flyers in the air forces that were flying over to Germany and France every day um, and the fighters that were accompanying the bombers. That was our... Uh, that was our forces fighting in Europe. Um, and it wasn't going well because these planes are flying, as part of their missions were f- flying undefended over enemy airspace, no fighters to defend them, and they were like sitting ducks in the air, and they were being shot out of the skies like crazy. Um, and as you know, Jim Stewart is, is training to come over to England to in the next wave of aviators that are going to fight the Germans. And another character in the book, we haven't talked about the secondary characters, but another one is Clem Leone, who is a radio operator and a a gunner in his spare time on a B-24. And so here is the part that you liked. All right. The American fleet of bombers had been decimated to date, mauled so badly they had stopped flying twice and Churchill was left to wring his hands and go it alone. But the Brits didn't count on one thing, Yankee ingenuity. American bombers were developing rapidly on U.S. industrial drawing boards. Engineers were developing more powerful engines and packing each ship with a lethal array of machine guns in turrets in in front of, on top of, underneath, and aft to fend off German fighters. American fighter variants were progressing just as fast. In America, unseen by the RAF, the buildup of the U.S. Army Air Forces had been going on for a year now. Four engine rated pilots like Captain James Stewart were being minted weekly, and crews of Clement Leonis were training in bases across the American heartland.
0: It's such a vivid reflection on how quickly the world was changing and how, as Stewart himself described in that Winning Your Wings film, the cause of decency was ramping up and on its way to the fight. And uh, I thought that was so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I think there are a lot of passages like that throughout the book. And uh, if you weren't a fan of Jim Stewart before, I believe you would be after this. There's really no way that you couldn't be.
1: Well, you know, I like I say, I started out neutral on the guy. Um, I wondered if he really was the hero that he had been portrayed as you know um, I wondered what was a hero what did it mean and um, and yeah I'm I'm now a fan of the, the wartime Jim Stewart
0: 100% there's another quote that stood out to me too it's from Mr. Stewart he said all my efforts all my prayers couldn't stand between them and their fates and I grieved for them he was talking about of the men serving underneath him.
1: Yeah, uh, I spent a lot of time, um, I wondered if too much time, but I, I, I spent a lot of time developing the characters of the pilots in his squadron who went over with him um, to England from their bases in the U.S. And, and were these young... American men, you know, America's finest young men um, serving as B-24 pilots flying these dangerous missions, and he has to start dealing with their deaths or their imprisonment because they're shot down. They're shot down around him. He sees them go down. Sometimes the planes are on fire and nobody gets out. Sometimes there are parachutes. And he gets a sense they're going to make it to the ground, but then their fate is uncertain. Um, So, yeah, uh, he has to find a way to understand and deal with the fates of the men under him. And like I said, you know, that's the stress that got to him.
0: It's sort of a tightrope I'm walking here because you don't want to spoil the book. I think everybody who listens to this just needs to get a copy and read it. Uh, So I'm I'm trying to brush on things without, because there are uh, surprise moments. There are things that are unexpected. Um, I think I can talk about this without giving anything away, but as men went missing in action, um, you don't know what happened to them. Some of them survived. Um, I'm curious, how did Jim Stewart get word that some of these men were still alive? I'm not sure how that process worked.
1: Well, um, first of all, it was the, uh, the the eyewitness reports when the crews would come back, and they would have their debrief with the intelligence officer. they would talk about how many shoots they had seen, and that gave you an indication of who lived or not. and the USO would also provide um, information sooner or later on flyers from each bomb group that had been taken prisoner and had been transferred into prison camps. So the USO did provide the information and it was anecdotal also, you know, what the odds were that crews made it out.
0: Okay. So do you happen to know afterwards, like for those POWs, how he would have eventually found out that these men were still alive that he always wondered about throughout the war?
1: Um, It it did filter back and I do think it was the USO okay the the, um, you know the the um, what do you call it the the international agency that took care of prisoners and made sure prisoners were well taken care of prisoners rights the Geneva Convention the whole thing that provided information back to the USAAF
0: okay All right. Um, yeah as you mentioned you do talk about other people in this book you have the German side you know another officer that you profile there's it's it's a deep book we can barely scratch the surface on it and again I don't want to give too much away I think people should just go read it Uh, one thing that I enjoyed seeing was the presence of It's a Wonderful Life in the book it begins with that film and then uh, obviously that's the first movie that he made after the war I wondered if you could talk about the significance of that film for a moment and what that would have meant for him.
1: Well, I've thought a lot about the fact that there are, even your Clark Gables are passing into history now. You know, um, so many generations have come and gone that Humphrey Bogart is barely hanging on. You know, uh, Casablanca is considered a, a classic picture and. It's very still very well known, but you know your millennials are losing touch with who the old movie stars were. They don't care. I, they really don't care. The world is moving on. Old pictures are now like Jaws and Star Wars. That's that's old movies. But It's a Wonderful Life has a life of its own and is, I think, America's most beloved picture. And Stewart has maintained his. Popularity, even with younger generations, more than even Clark Gable or a lot of these movie stars. So this is where I had to start and end the book was with It's a Wonderful Life because the most beloved picture has this tremendous backstory that nobody knows, and it is where Stewart had just been, and it is the fact that he is back on a movie set for the first time in five years in this bizarre picture about a guy contemplating suicide and an angel winning his wings. When Stuart first heard the concept from Frank Capra's mouth, he almost got up and walked out. I mean, he, he didn't want to hear it because he wanted to make a comedy. You know, he wanted to make a light comedy and this isn't that. You know, it has its comedic aspects, but it's a very serious picture about very serious subjects, suicide and such, and the value of human life. So um, all of this backstory is, is, is laid out in Mission because I find it utterly fascinating, down to the fact that when he's running in the climax of the picture down the street uh, in the snow, And the snow is flying, and it's cold, and he's sloshing along. It's really the Santa Fernando Valley in June, and it's 90 degrees. I mean, that's the magic of Hollywood, but that's, you know, how does that not mess with your head? First of all, a year before this, months before this, you had been flying missions over Germany and almost losing your life. And now you are making believe again, and you're doing it in this wild fashion. So... I mean, that's why I start and end there, because I just think it's cool.
0: <laughs> oh, I agree. And I love the way that you uh, you get into his mind at that filming stage where it's as if he has realized that make-believe, uh, the ability to go back and do that and to bring people joy again is important. It's uh, You would wonder if he could ever embrace that again, having seen what he saw, but... I think you make a, a really strong case for why he would think this is absolutely what I should be doing.
1: There was a conversation, I did not put it in the book, um, but he, he had a crisis of conscience when he came back, and he wasn't sure that movie making was a valuable thing. And he mentioned something to that effect on the set of It's a Wonderful Life. And of all people, Lionel Barrymore, if you can imagine, you know, old man Potter, s- looks up at him and he says, so you think dropping bombs on people is worthwhile to do? And that really made Stuart stop and think, well, maybe I am doing something worthwhile. You know, I'm entertaining. And it. I think that conversation really started to turn him around, and, and so... The way I portray it in the book is maybe the culmination of him coming to terms with civilian life again and his career and its potential impact. And it's not war and it's not life and death every day, but it is important. And I think he did come to grips with that.
0: I think it's significant to think about this film. You mentioned he wanted to make a comedy Instead, he gets something quite different. And what he probably feared at the time was that the public wasn't ready for something like this, and it turns out he was right. They weren't ready. It did okay, but um, it wasn't what people wanted at that time. But as it turns out, he was making a movie for the ages. This was something that, as you said, got a life of its own and uh, really, really had an impact over the years.
1: Yeah, I you know... um how could you not how could the audience not really uh embrace this picture when it first came out? I don't know, um but it was ahead of its time, and it took you know television and and sort of saturation exposure to it for people to come back to it again and again and I guess really, if you think about it, and I never did until now um, it takes a while to get the concept, maybe the first time you're overwhelmed by it or you don't. You know, whatever. It's something that if you the more you watch that picture, the more you get out of it. And um and so the funny thing is that Stuart, because it didn't do well initially, I mean it did all right. It didn't make back its negative cost because Capra was very extravagant. As you if you look at the picture you see, you know, it it's got all the bells and whistles. And that adds up in cost like three million dollars to make the thing. But when it didn't do well, Stuart didn't like it. He didn't want to talk about it, he thought it was a bust, and he was like that about his pictures. If they were popular and people liked them, then he liked them too. And Wonderful Life was not one of those pictures to the extent that he didn't want Donna Reed in another one of his movies. Mm. How about that? (laughs) Because she was box office poison, he thought. And so she was supposed to be cast in the Stratton story with him, and he had her removed. She was in costume fittings, and he had her removed from the picture. So um, later on, when it became a popular thing and a a cultural phenomenon, then, of course, Donna Reed was okay again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I I can understand that. If he, uh, he does want to keep his audience in mind and he thinks, well, they know best, and then when that swings back around
1: he was very he was very um very business savvy very wise and business was business and even though you know it would hurt donna reed's feelings and it really did um he he made that decision and it's how he amassed a vast fortune in the picture business because he he made the right decisions for 20 straight years
0: that's right all right well i think we are Getting to a closing point, but I want to stay on It's a Wonderful Life for a moment. And going through this book, uh, these are some thoughts that have occurred to me. The film itself asks, what if George Bailey had never been born? Uh, This begs the question, what if Jimmy Stewart had never been born? Uh, You probably thought of these things as well. First off, how many soldiers would never have joined the Army Air Corps to begin with? Uh, You look at Winning Your Wings, which you know, had that line, your commission in the Air Force is waiting. And as you say, uh, he delivered it with such conviction that men practically vaulted from their theater seats to enlist. So I think he had to have that impact. And I think just the fact that he's a big Hollywood star and Oscar winner, that would carry a lot more weight from, you know, here's a guy who's willing to give up everything that he has, he has, you know, he's at the top of the world, yet he he will abandon fame and fortune and go sign up for the war. I should do that too. So I'm thinking that's, uh, that had to have just been incredibly impactful. Uh, yeah. Next, um, considering the number of crewmen saved under his leadership, fellow airmen who benefited from his strong training, uh, the number of lives saved because of the Nazi equipment and, and weaponry that and his fellow airmen had destroyed. Uh, Then you think about the number of children born who otherwise wouldn't have been born. Um, (laughs) It's it's amazing. Um, Then after, you know, even after his passing, think of how many men and women who have served their country, at least partially, they were inspired by him. They looked up to him. They saw that he did it. Uh, It just runs so deep, and I feel like I'm only scratching the surface. I'm curious if you've thought of these things and uh, just what, what a legacy Jim Stewart had.
1: Yeah, I think particularly about his role as a flight instructor and how he taught guys by the book, and he taught them the right way. And then, as you say, um, his, his tight formation flying, um, his sensible decisions, his, his quick, right decisions saved so many lives. That's on the one hand, you know, that's the wartime legacy. And when he got off the ship, the Queen Elizabeth in New York City, he, he stopped and he spent hours saluting those men, you know, and, and being with them one last time. And, and that, that carried them, maybe it gave them a little something to take back into the terrifying civilian world that they faced, you know. And that, that means a lot, I think, um, and then career-wise, who would have played those Jimmy Stewart roles in Call Northside 777, or Winchester 73, or or the Glenn Miller story, or Vertigo, you know? Who would have filled George Bailey's role? Hmm. Would it have been Henry Fonda? He's the only other one, you know, that, that was like Stewart. He, he, Stewart and Fonda were best friends, and they were very similar in temperament and looks even you know a couple of tall string beans and with with they were both funny guys too and i imagine fonda could have been george bailey and it would have been a different picture you know, so that's that's something else too is is his impact on hollywood history in addition to his impact on military history
0: yes I, you know i was only talking about his military side and you know, you're right uh, just to think about how many people he influenced as an actor. I mean, that's that's how, how they know him first and foremost. Um, phenomenal.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, and he is. And I don't know who I could write about who is still relevant from the old Hollywood guard. You know, Stuart is right there, and for a number of reasons that we've just covered.
0: Well, what's next for you?
1: Well, I have an idea. You know, I've got to get this thing out the door and put to bed. Um, My uh, Fireball is coming out in trade paperback in January in an expanded edition, so I'm going to be supporting that for a while. And then I have to go to Europe and do my due diligence to see if I really have the dynamite book as the next one we'll have to see but you know this one could top the other two It could top fireball and and stewart and become my you know world war Two hollywood trilogy
0: oh very good <laughs> mr Matson. this was a pleasure and i wish you all the best uh, i know that this book just speaks for itself so I, I know you'll have nothing but success from it
1: well i appreciate that um I, I sat at this very desk where I am right now and I fought World War II in the skies over Europe and, and it was incredible. I mean, it was just incredible to sit and do that and so now I get to share it and see if others find it the same way and it's, it's a cool thing. And so thank you very, very much for
0: having me on. Oh You bet. Thank you. Thank you to Robert Mattson. You can follow him on his website, Robert com where you can learn more about the books he's written, keep up with his appearances, and follow his blog. The book, again, is Mission, Jimmy Stewart and the Fight for Europe, and you can find it at Amazon.com and other retailers. If you're in the Indiana, Pennsylvania area at the time of this original post, Mr. Matson will be making an appearance at the Jimmy Stewart Museum on Saturday, November 19th at 1 p.m., and will be signing copies of the book. You won't want to miss it. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back soon. Bye for now.